I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die back to The Left is Dead. I'm your host, James Carey. Uh, my co-host, Jake Anderson, is canceled and will no longer be appearing because of images he used in his last children's book that are no longer politically correct. Filling in for him tonight will be uh, Jake Anderson, his clone. So how are you tonight, Jake? Uh, I'm good. I'm feeling a bit peckish from my poor biological reconstruction. You're much younger now, though. Yeah, but I'm but I'm much stupider. Yeah, but I also have worse news for you. You don't have a social security number any longer because you don't have human rights. So you won't be getting any of this uh, good news coming down. And that's the $1,400 everyone's supposed to start getting tomorrow, basically. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult without a social security number to get this massive <laughs> one month rent payment uh, from the government. Uh, but, you know, there's other ways to make money. <laughs> to be fair, it's one and a half months here. So this is just Portland. Your rent's too high. But yeah, that is the big news. It's not really my rent, but uh, that, that's not my rent. But uh, I, because I, I live in a lab. That's right. Well, Jake actually lives in uh, a penthouse paid for by the the city of Portland to cause trouble. Yeah. That's accurate? No, it's not. Yes, it is. Anyway, once again, we've established Jake is rich, so he won't be getting the stimulus anyway, even if he wasn't a clone. But that is the big news this week, and I don't know. We're having... This weird debate where the libs are framing this as like a poverty ending measure. Have you seen like that take on it? Well, which of the three fictional versions of me that you've painted in this intro are you referring to? Any of them. Any of them? Okay. They all use the same Twitter account, so. Yeah. Yeah. Asking me what I think about that. There's like, yeah, there's this take that's going around. It's like, oh, well. Well, one, like there was an economic prediction that this would like put our growth on par with China as if somehow these tax credits and like a stimulus payment are going to be translate into like permanent growth. You know, maybe we will be on par with China for like a quarter or no, two. We're not going to be on track with China for mm. a while. It, it, it may be never uh china has been on a much different economic trajectory a much different national trajectory which translates towards economy because instead of focusing on on bombing other countries and using a kind of you know form of like economic imperialism uh china you know one they haven't bombed anyone they, they have problems of course but what they've been doing is uh, one, they've been doing something called, more recently, the pa pandemic diplomacy, which is China has been uh, using 
their vaccines to directly bail out uh, less developed countries uh, with vaccines. So they're, so they're not aiming for uh, a patent on, on vaccines. One, that they, two, they've been doing that in a number of other ways as well uh, with their uh, economic plans have basically entailed bailing out, uh, reconstructing elements of countries like Bolivia, uh, Ecuador and others. Uh, so they've been, instead of bombing countries, China has actually been building up countries. And three, furthermore, China's uh, intellectual property and technology has, has at this point probably lapped Silicon Valley. And that's why the Biden administration pretty much has the same policy towards China the Trump administration did, which is that they're using uh, government sanctions to essentially try and ban uh, the development of intellectual property patents by China. It's like, because they don't want to play fair because we, we know we're outmatched at this point. So short answer is no, we're not going to be overtaking <laughs> anytime soon. I don't think that I don't think the projection is even that we'd overtake them. I think the projection is like, well, we'll have growth on par with them for like, and they don't say how long that is, but I'm assuming that's for a brief period of time. And it's growth in the same way that like, oh, Poland has like their wages have gone up the most out of any EU country. And it's like, yeah, it's easiest to go up when you're like already at the bottom. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and our economy has been so devastated that like the growth is like, oh, well, this is it coming back to where it was. So what does it really matter? We're also not really talking about like sustainable growth plans here. No, that's what I mean. It's not going to last. Like China is investing in like alternative energy and artificial intelligence and all kinds of technologies that are going to be the future. Uh, America is still kind of marooned in in the past even i mean although we we have some incredible technology companies obviously but because they're so profit based uh it, it doesn't i mean they're, they're only developing technology insofar as they can profit off of it and to but me that, that doesn't seem to be that that doesn't seem to be going for the full purpose of where that growth could lead to me there's no like public investment in the individual, like uh, education or healthcare or housing or anything like that. And that's the issue is like, yeah, you can do a stimulus payment or a tax credit, but that's just a continuation of like, well, if you just continue to prop up like demand and consumption, it's okay. You know, like this is what it's based off of. As long as there's demand, things are working, which obviously is not true. You know, that there'll be a demand for food when everyone's starving. That doesn't mean it's working. You know, just because you can charge $100 for a case of water during a hurricane, that doesn't mean the market's working. Just because there's demand for something or growth isn't necessarily a sign of a successful country. And this is just, this isn't investment in like anyone's life. This isn't like a college education or anything. This is like I said, it's tax credits and a check, you know, it's a one-time thing where it's like, well, you'll use this to consume because you haven't had money all year. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, 
you know, not a long-term thing, but it's still, you know, it's still better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, about time. It only took two months. It's, 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 you know, we've seen huge bailouts, stimulus bailouts before, but usually they are targeted at specific kinds of corporations and specific sectors of the economy that, uh, that they're trying to prop up artificially. Whereas this time, well, one, it's a pretty extraordinary amount, 1.9 trillion. And it's also way more strategically focused on specifically the working and middle class, which is, is not usually the way it's done. And so there's gonna be a lot more direct relief. It's not just the 1400, but also people with kids will get like a $3,600 tax credit for each kid they get. Uh, and I think that might be per month. Oh, no, 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 it's per year. But, you know, we may be seeing something where we may be seeing the kind of a beginning of what will later be termed a universal basic income. Like if, if, if this works and it helps people, you know, we, this could be the kind of thing where this was the beginning of a kind of universal basic income, which is a form of, of democratic socialism. Um, so, and, and I long predicted this, which is that this pandemic was going to kind of, by necessity, force in aspects of democratic socialism, just because by sheer necessity, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be necessary, <laughs> you know, the, the, the middle class isn't necessary for the predator class to, to make money off of, but if no one has any money to spend, uh, a consumer-based economy like ours can't possibly continue to flourish. So people wow. need to have money to spend. Eventually they won't have money anyway. True. So, but anyways, I don't know. We've been bullshitting enough. It's a whole another story for another day in which we should Honestly, we should just have a one-on-one -on -one episode again in the near future. But uh, tonight's guest, we have a man here to talk with us about North Korea or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the UK delegate for the Korean Friendship Association, Dermot Hudson. Um, I don't know. We cover a lot of things here. Uh, it was an interesting interview. And obviously, we did this about a week ago or so. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts before we go into it, Jake? No. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it on the other end, so we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Left is Dead. I am your host, James Carey, as always joined by my co-host, Jake. Uh, we are joined today by the a UK delegate for the Korean Friendship Association, uh, Dermot Hudson, who I've interviewed in the past and spoken with on um, really not so much foreign policy, but we'll get into that today, but more of internal policy of North Korea, which, you know, Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is something of a mystery to a lot of people in the West. So um, I guess we'll start out by Dermot. Did you want to explain what the Korean Friendship Association is? 
Okay. Um, to explain the uh, Korean Friendship Association or KFA very simply, our slogan, our watchword is defend the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And that's, that's what we do. Uh, you know, we do our best to counter and combat the misinformation that is now spread on an industrial scale about the DPRK. Uh, you know, that's, that's what we do. We also try to build up uh, cultural exchanges uh, with the DPRK and, uh, you know, tell people about the way of life in the DPRK. We've got over 17,000 members worldwide uh, and we're organised in a number of countries uh, such as the UK and I'm the official delegate of the KFA for the UK and sort of chairman of the KFA here in the UK. Uh, you know, we work in a number of ways. Uh, you know, we, before we had the lockdown in the UK, we were holding meetings, we were even holding pickets like, you know, picketing the US Embassy, the BBC, the South Korean Embassy and so on. But, you know, we also branched out into a bit of cultural work and we held a very successful exhibition of DPRK posters, DPRK revolutionary art, which went quite well. You know, that's just uh, an example of the work we do. Yeah, I, I do find the cultural exchanges interesting because I think that there's a lot of... I don't think Americans really understand uh, Korean culture in general, um, except in relation to South Korean capitalism and the U.S. military presence there. You know, I don't think we understand it too much out of it. But when I first came across you, you, as you said, you picketed the BBC and the U.S. Embassy and things like that. One thing I've noticed the KFA does a lot of is um, fighting a lot of the misinformation coming out of the media, you know, the deaths of somebody who reappears a month later and the feeding people the dog stories or whatever, all of these ridiculous things that come out of basically what are South Korean tabloids. Can you kind of explain the pipeline of where like North Korean, anti-North Korea propaganda comes from? Yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, a lot of it uh, does originate from uh, South Korea. Uh, though, of course, you know, the uh, press in... Uh, the capitalist countries, uh, you know, can also make up things, but a lot of it is actually is actually recycling propaganda uh, from South Korea against the DPRK, uh, and the you know South Korean puppets, you know, uh, they have set up quite a big machine. Uh, to spread anti-DPRK propaganda, and you have uh, things like uh, a website called the Daily NK, uh, which is particularly uh, vitriolic about the DPRK and is funded by the US Endowment for Democracy mm -hmm. and is very much linked to uh, the far right in South Korea. In fact, it's so extreme that at one point, the uh, South Korean authorities actually distanced themselves from it and said it's not a reliable source of information. Yet, you know, despite that, uh, you know, uh, 
its stories are used all the time in the South Korean media and in the uh, in the Western media. And, you know, I, I think that was uh, uh, a good use, a uh, good term you used, you know, the pipeline, because uh, that's a very good way of describing it. You know, you, you will get stories that are first floated in the uh, South Korean media, you know, you know, like the ones you said about, you know, fake execution stories. And, you know, within days, if not weeks, you know, they will then appear in, you know, different Western media, like, you know, some of the, uh, you know, venal tabloids in, in the UK, like the Sun and the Mirror and the Daily Mail and so on, you know, you know, assumes, you know, same with the US press. So, I mean, this, this is how a lot of the propaganda against the DPRK is created it's created in South Korea uh sometimes for you know quite intern you know internal purposes you know uh to distract the South Korean people from the fact that South Korea is occupied by US troops you know that South Korea is actually a society where there's a big gap between the rich and the poor uh so you know attacking the DPRK in very uh, extreme terms, of course, you know, distracts from that. And, you know, the, the Western media repeat these stories in order to demonise the DPRK, to defame uh, the socialist system there, but al also as, you know, means of uh, war propaganda as well. Uh, yeah, in fact, while we're on this subject, I guess I'll kind of jump ahead in that outline. Um, let's talk i think because jake will probably have some questions about this he's not quite as convinced about the dprk as i am um let's talk about you know some of the more uh i suppose the lies that really stick about north korea the idea of the repressive society society or starvation or random executions and things like that I mean, you see it in its most ridiculous terms in the articles, like, oh, there's only seven approved haircuts or things like that. But it's much more nefarious than that, because this is the constant running line about uh, the DPRK is that, well, this is an authoritarian place that is locked down. And by locked down, I mean, it's not open to Western interests, but that's considered locked down to them. So, I mean, what, what, fuels this and is the DPRK's closure to Western interests mainly meant as a repudiation of this or what? I'm sorry if that's a long question. Right. Well, I mean if I if I yeah, it's is a long, long bit of a long question. I suppose what are the most egregious like myths that just permeate about North Korea and how do you respond to them? Right. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of myths. I, I mean, I think one of the uh, one of the main ones that sort of gets repeated, you know, every so often is that they're all starving. And in fact, you know, we we've just run a short uh, piece uh, in KFA UK about uh, about that because you know, again. 
you know, there's, you know, they're saying that half the population of the DPRK is starving. And, you know, they're, they're citing uh, a UN investigator this time who has actually never set, set a single foot inside the DPRK for this report. And it is basically a nonsense report uh, because, uh, you, you know, at, at the moment, you know, the... Uh, DPRK hasn't even started the farming season yet. Uh, so you, you can't predict at this stage, you know, what the crops will be like, you know, because what, you know, they're trying to say that, you know, 50% of the population are going to uh, starve, uh, you know, but, you know, they're not, uh, you know, the, you know, the crops haven't, haven't even uh, gone into the ground, let alone been harvested, you know, so you can't, you know, it's not a prediction being uh, based on any kind of fact. And, uh, you know, and if, um, it was reported at the party congress that, you know, despite the difficulties uh, caused by flooding last year, you know, there was... Uh, an increase in agricultural production. And, you know, uh, also, you know, speaking as someone who's visited the DPRK 18 times, including in the very difficult years of the 1990s, yeah, I was there in 1996, you know, I've never actually seen any uh, sign of starvation or you know, in recent visits, you know, I've never seen severe shortages in the shops, you know, th those are uh, very uh, well, well stocked indeed. Uh, you know, and there's, there's a myth, uh, you know, that the DPRK is, you know, somehow very much reliant on imports and on aid and, you know, simply by imposing uh, sanctions on the DPRK, this, this will, uh, cause the economy to collapse but you know that actually that actually hasn't happened and I think the other uh myth uh, you know you alluded to, to is you know the I you know idea of a very repressive society and again uh you know that's uh, you know it's it's done in a very general way which can make it uh difficult uh to refute uh, but, uh, you know, I would just say, you know, the following uh, things last uh, year, because it was the 75th anniversary of liberation from Japanese rule and the 75th anniversary of the foundation of the Workers' Party, a general amnesty was granted to all people uh, convicted of crimes against the country, and that was... Uh, put into effect in September 2020. Uh, so, you know, there's actually no one, uh, you know, in penal institutions in the DPRK. In fact, uh, you know, penal incarceration in the DPRK is used as a very last result, not as a first result, but as a last result. Uh, you know, there is uh, indeed uh, re-education in, in the DPRK for crimes, uh, but this can often take the form of actual re-education at your workplace 
or in your community, you know, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, that people are uh, carted off uh, to prison. And, you know, the imperialists, the West, you know, they, they've tried to allege that, you know, there's these, you know, massive uh, camps in, in the DPRK. Uh, well, you know, I've never seen them, no, nor, nor have other people visiting the DPRK. And I know, you know, people will say, oh, but of course you wouldn't, you know, they're hidden uh, somewhere. But the fact is, uh, you know, if the numbers that the, the imperialists and the human rights liberals are alleging uh, in these camps would mean that they are actually quite big because they, they claim it's 100,000 uh, or 200,000. In fact, you, you will notice that uh, several different figures are given uh, ranging from, I think, about 80,000 at the low end up to 200,000. Uh, but in a small country, the DPRK, which is on, only uh, only got a population of 25 million and is about the same size as uh, England plus plus a bit of Wales, uh, you know, it's, it's not a very big country. And, uh, you know, if you had that number of people uh, in penal uh, incarceration, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to easily hide camps uh, away. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, some people have produced satellite images purporting to show, uh, you know, uh, these, these camps in the DPRK. But in fact, what they are showing is actually ordinary uh, collective farms, uh, housing areas uh, and, and factories. That's all they're showing. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that's, uh, you know, that's been falsely interpreted uh, in, uh, you know, it's a false interpretation of uh, the data, you know, quite a deliberate one. And of course, the other source for these stories is, is so-called defectors. Uh, you know, and these people have been discredited time and time again. Uh, they've been shown to lie. Uh, you know, some of them seem to be, uh, you know, looking to make a lot of uh, money, uh, including the one who is, uh, who has settled in the United States and has become a sort of minor celebrity in the, the United States. You know, she seems to want to make a lot of money so, sir, I was going to ask you, I uh, actually started to hit upon a question I was going to ask you about, but it went another way uh, in, in terms of the surveillance, um, because <laughs> I, some of the criticism against North Korea usually can sometimes include, well, it, you know, surveillance footage of the country at night shows that there's no uh, power grid, right? Is, is, is that... Is that part more of the misinformation that the, it doesn't appear that the city has lights on in major parts of it at night? Or is, is that more, is that propaganda? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, certainly when I, I've stayed in Pyongyang, they, they've had the lights on at night. And in fact, uh, there's actually construction work uh, going on 24 hours 
uh, you know, with some of the key construction projects, uh, they kept running for 24 hours in order to complete them. <coughs> so, uh, you know, in fact, uh, uh, you know, from what I've seen, you know, Pyongyang is certainly lit up at night. I mean, I, I suspect the images shown are either very old ones from the 1990s or have actually been in some way uh, photoshopped and uh, faked, uh, you know, which actually would be incredibly easy to do the, these days. And in fact, uh, you know, I did actually see, uh, you know, another image of the DPRK at night, uh, which showed it uh, lit up, uh, which is quite different to this, this very uh, old stereotype image which keeps getting uh uh you know dragged up all, all the time you know contrasting uh the dprk with with, with south korea i mean I, I say i i suspect that is that has been photoshopped but you know there is another image which actually you know shows you know a lot of the cities in the dprk is being lit up but i say i know from my own experience in pyongyang you know the lights are definitely on okay uh, so yeah know, uh, yeah the lights are on at night and yes that is propaganda okay so then another question i would have is if this i mean i don't even disagree with with all these characterizations in fact i think there's a you know probably a lot of uh, effort made to uh, create these foils uh, in the east of our imperialistic ambitions here. In fact, most of the criticism of you guys, for example, on Rational Wiki, it is claimed this is a bizarre version of reality in which North Korea is a bastion of peace, friendship, and independence, and the unfortunate victim of imperialistic conspiracies to prevent the peaceful reunification of the Korea pen Peninsula. You know, noting that, you know, North Korea supposedly sits on the trillions of dollars of precious minerals, I'm trying to get my head around what is, what is the use of the U.S. propping up ideologically this idea of an evil North Korea if we're not going, like, I would think that we would attack North Korea and, and occupy them, take their, take their minerals. And uh, so, so what going on decades now, like what do you think is the end game of these imperialistic conspiracies about North Korea? Where is this headed? Right, well, I think uh, because of the uh, DPRK building up its military potentials and the uh, nuclear deterrent, which is a game changer, uh, you know, I think uh, that has tended to uh, you know, has uh, stopped uh, the the idea of uh, a military invasion of the DPRK, like what happened in the 1950s. Uh, however, uh, that doesn't stop uh, the US from trying to put military pressure on the DPRK. Uh, you know, I think US military uh planners believe that you know they can put if they can put enough pressure on the dprk but without actually physically attacking it uh you know at some point it you know they think it, it will crack well i mean i you know i think they're quite wrong but i'm sure you know there's that calculation 
uh, has been made. But I think what's, um, what the imperialists would really aim at is they would still aim at regime change. Uh, they, you know, they'd still aim at, you know, overthrowing the government in the DPRK, but not by the means of a direct military invasion. You know, they would try uh, to bring about this by other methods. And, uh, you know, if you read some of the stuff, um, which I <laughs> do from uh, time to time, because it's quite toxic, uh, uh, you know, from the imperialist policymakers, they, they seem to think uh, that applying more and more sanctions uh, on the DPRK and through psychological warfare and uh, propaganda, you know, they will uh, be able to uh, destabilise the DPRK, uh, perhaps uh, create some kind of colour revolution in the DPRK. I think, you know, I think that that is actually a daydream. Uh, you know, I think that's actually impossible in the DPRK, but, you know, there's people around who believe they, they can, uh, you know, th this can happen. So, you know, I think that's what, you know, they aim to do. Uh, and, you know, the, you know, DPRK has been victimized, um, has been demonized uh, on an industrial scale to try and pave the way for that kind of scenario. Uh, and also, you know, to cut off any kind of solidarity or support uh, for the DPRK, you know, to sort of politically and ideologically isolate uh, the DPRK uh, from any any yeah. sympathy. So, you know, they can, you know, put their own people into power in, in the DPRK. I think, you know, more conscious in Americans like political imagination will probably be Iran. But the same thing happens to Iran where there's no viable military strategy for taking out Iran. And the same goes for the DPRK, uh, where especially the nuclear weapons program obviously makes a huge difference when it comes to talking about an imperialist attack on you. But even before that, uh, the DPRK heavily invested in the self-defense of their country. And, you know, obviously Seoul has always been in danger should the U.S. decide to restart the conflict. So can you explain... Um, I guess the Songon policy and North Korea's military doctrine in response to Western pressures. And it, it, if, you know, in the context of like Libya, not having weapons of mass destruction or Saddam, not really having them. Can you talk about how this is, I suppose the Songon policy and just how the nuclear weapons have made a difference as far yeah. as Korea goes? Okay, yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, the DPRK's nuclear deterrent is a game changer. Uh, it was the US that created the nuclear question on the Korean Peninsula because they shipped uh, nuclear weapons into South Korea in 1957 in violation of the Korean Armistice Agreement of 1950. Free and in 2002, the DPRK was declared, uh, along with six other countries, uh, uh, you know, a target for a preemptive 
uh, US nuclear strike. So, you know, the DPRK went down the road of developing the nuclear deterrent. Uh, I think it's uh, quite right that you, you draw parallels with Libya and Iraq. Uh, Libya was a sort of anti-imperialist independent country, had its own form of uh, Arab socialism. Uh, you know, this uh, they uh, initially started research into nuclear weapons and sort of gave it up and actually, you know, surrendered um, what's, uh, what there was of their very basic nuclear program to the US. And uh, uh, this uh, was one of the things that uh, the US thought they could impose on the DPRK. There was talk of the Libyan model and uh, one John Bolton was very keen on this uh, and he was he was very keen for Trump to uh, try and impose it on on the DPRK which of course they rejected and again with with Iraq uh, they didn't have uh, weapons of mass destruction they didn't have nuclear weapons uh, you know in fact uh, you know they they actually capitulated uh, and say uh, the DPRK you know, it's not, it's not going to be like that. The Songun policy uh, means uh, giving priority to the military, uh, recognising the very important role played by the army in society. Of course, it doesn't mean a military government or controlled by the military. Uh, it's always been stressed that the uh, armed forces are under the leadership of the Workers' Party of Korea. And if you see military parades uh, of the DPRK, you will often see the party's flag on military uh, vehicles. And uh, Marshal Kim Jong-un himself uh, stressed the uh, importance of the party's leadership over the military. Uh, you know, it does mean building up the uh, defence potential of the DPRK quite strongly and in depth. And uh, the DPRK back in the 1960s uh, adopted a number of policies. Uh, one of them uh, in 1962 uh, was the policy of building the economy and the uh, defence capacity in parallel. Uh, and it was very significant that it was adopted uh, in 1962, just after the Cuban Missile Crisis, because uh, the DPRK became very aware that they couldn't rely on big countries uh, to uh, defend them. You know, this is what the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, showed. Uh, you know, that a small country cannot rely on a big a country to defend itself uh, because you know with with the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis you saw uh, the Soviet Union do a deal with the US over the head of over the heads of the Cuban leadership you know base, basically betraying uh, Cuba and you know DPRK didn't want that to happen uh, to them so, you know, they adopted this policy of uh, building the economy and defence in parallel uh, of modernising the armed forces. Uh, 
the uh, Korean People's Army is uh, a Kader army, uh, meaning uh, that everyone in it is trained to do the duties of the next rank up. Uh, so, you know, uh, if an officer is uh, killed, then an NCO can take uh, their place and so on. It's organized on that basis. You also have um, very powerful uh, self-defensive militias uh, like the Worker Peasant Red Guard and the uh, Young Red Guards, which is, is teenagers. Uh, you know, ba basically in the DPRK, virtually everyone is armed, you know, has access uh, to weapons. And, you know, in the event of the war, uh, you know, they would, uh, you know, the whole population would be mobilized uh, to fight. And, uh, you know, another important thing about the DPRK's defense policy uh, is you have the concept of army people uh, unity. You know, the uh, people and army are united. And uh, I've seen this sort of um, demonstrated by the fact that, you know, when I've uh, been in the DPRK for uh, major anniversaries and they've held a, a parade, uh, you get the military parade first and then uh, the civilians uh, come afterwards, you know, with their own parade, uh, you know, so it's not just the military, it's civilians as well. And right. the, the army, uh, you know, carry out construction work, uh, you know, and they, they help the people, you know, with the recent floods in the early autumn last year, you know, the army was first on the scene to reconstruct buildings. Sir, I was wondering, um, <clears throat> so it seems like, uh, I, I guess one of my mysteries about North Korea to me is that there, there's so little uh, alternative independent media that seems to have accessed, infiltrated, or otherwise gone into North Korea and re and reported back on it in a, in a favorable way or any kind of way. And in fact, uh, you know, besides Chris Hedges, there hasn't really been a lot of like mainstream journalistic infiltration. And I guess I'm wondering uh, like why, if, if North Korea is, is, you know, in the state that you're arguing it is, um, why is there, is there reluctance to let outsiders in to document this or is it they're letting people in, for example, you, and then they're distorting their reports back? And a, a follow-up to that, which is related, would be the imbroglio over when uh, the American student Otto Warmbier uh, died there. I followed that case pretty, pretty closely and I, I never really got a good answer, not only from American authorities, but it, North Korean authorities just denied up and down anything that happened to him. Um, but they did acknowledge he was in a, a prison labor camp at some point. Um, so I guess my question is to you, like, with that case maybe as a, as a you know, focal point, uh, you know, what what do you think happened to Otto Warmbier? And like, why wasn't there more transparency about, you know, what happened to him 
because his family currently has no idea really what happened to him, except he went to North Korea. Uh, he like stole some flag or something, something stupid. And then he ended up in a, in a prison labor camp and they believe he was tortured and then he died. I mean, can you paint more, you know, about that situation and then why there's so little uh, documentation about events like that? Right, okay, well, I'll take the uh, warm beer question first and then uh, answer your, your general point. Uh, Otto Warmbier was uh, a U.S. student, uh, and first thing to make clear is he did not actually die in the DPRK. He actually died in a U.S. hospital uh, five days after, or I think ten days after he'd returned from the DPRK. Uh, it was the DPRK's initiative to actually uh, release him early. And also, uh, you know, I would sort of contradict your accounts. Uh, as far as I know, he did, uh, though he was actually uh, sentenced uh, to uh, corrective labor, he actually was never uh, in a camp because he, he became ill uh, not long after he was sentenced, he was actually in the People's Friendship Hospital uh, in the DPRK in East Pyongyang, where I've, I've actually been treated in the same hospital. Uh, so why, why wouldn't they release? Well, why, why didn't they release him when he got sick? Why didn't they extradite him or send him back back to the U.S. so he could get proper medical care? Uh, so, so, I mean, why, why couldn't he get proper medical care in the DPRK? Uh, that's a good question. Why didn't he? Why did he die after he left? No, no, he was actually in the People's Friendship Hospital. I'm saying there was no need uh, to send him, uh, you know, back to the US. And, you know, you're saying uh, your statement sort of implies that the DPRK doesn't give proper medical care and only the US does. No, I, was, I wasn't implying that. I'm actually like truly trying to understand what, like, because I've researched it and I, I don't know what, I don't know what he died from. And right. I don't well, know well, yeah. how I'm, I'm so just, you know, try, trying to make the point that, you know, he actually, uh, when he was in, in the DPRK, he was in the People's French Hospital most of the time. Uh, it was a DPRK initiative uh, to release him. And in fact, uh, if you do research it, uh, you will find that one, one American coroner who actually got attacked in the US media for this uh, actually said there, there were no uh, signs of torture on warm beer. And in fact, uh, as far as they could see, that he'd actually received very good medical care. And I myself, you know, I've been treated at the People's Friendship Hospital twice. And I can sort of test, you know, testify that he's actually a very good hospital. Why, why, was, he why was he arrested in the first place? Right. Well, uh, you know, he... Uh, had gone to the DPRK with ill intentions. Uh, 
you know, and he uh, went uh, to a staff-only area of the hotel, you know, crept down there at night and, uh, you know, tried to uh, steal or damage uh, a uh, poster. And, you know, he confessed to this act. But uh, moreover, in his confession, uh, you know, he he said he'd been uh, uh, paid to do this. Uh, He mentioned the CIA in his confession. He gave a long uh, confession, you know, and he actually asked to be interviewed by the media. But I think uh, you've also got to see the whole thing in the context of the relations between the DPRK and the US. You know, Otto Warmbier uh, went to the DPRK and he's, you know, a citizen of a state that's, uh, you know, fought a war against the DPRK, has, you know, killed about 2 million people in the DPRK uh, during the Korean War. Uh, massacred 35,383 people in cold blood at Sinchon Ri, uh, used uh, German warfare against the DPRK, and, you know, after the war, uh, imposed uh, sanctions and blockades against the DPRK. So the relations between the DPRK and the US are not normal ones, they're ones of extreme hostility. And uh, warm beer, uh, you know, went into the DPRK with it in this context, uh, you know, and uh, say he basically carried out a criminal action, uh, you know, in in a in a uh, you know in a you know state which uh, you know the US doesn't have diplomatic relations with. Uh, you know, uh, the criminal, you know, the criminal action being he he stole a poster. Well, it's a criminal action, nevertheless. Right, but okay, and so, so you're saying he's, he's, he's from a state that's very hostile to the. Yeah, people. I think you put it in context. Okay, so but I guess I'm just trying to get to the heart of this. So you're you're saying that Otto Warmbier was a CIA asset that was set in there to. To steal a poster. I'm not saying that he was a CIA asset. I'm what well, I'm saying that in his confession, he mentioned the CIA and he mentioned a secret society, I think called the Z Society at the university uh, that he was at. Now, I believe uh, US universities do have these uh, very strange secret societies. You know, I believe. Uh, George Bush II was a member of one. I mean, these these do actually exist. Well, yeah, they were skull and bones. Um, yeah, that's one thing that I think, you know, putting Warren Beer's case in the context of U.S. and DPRK relations, you know, I think that you understand more why uh, he wasn't, you know, it became a big case. But I think one thing to keep in mind, and would you want to discuss it? Do you think that a part of the DPRK's reason for remaining so closed off and keeping out U.S. assets such as media, 
uh, NGOs, is that part of the strategy to resist internal, I suppose, political cohesion by the United States? Yes, because uh, you know this 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 is uh, one of the weapons of the U.S. against countries like the DPRK and other countries. Uh, you know, uh, sending uh, you know creating internal uh, subversion, uh, and that that is the strategy of the U.S. and in the DPRK. Uh, you know, having fought a war with the U.S., are very much. Uh, wise to this strategy and you know they take countermeasures but I mean DPRK is not uh, you know as closed off as some people are trying to suggest uh, there is an AP bureau in Pyongyang uh, and you know from time to time the DPRK give the western media a chance uh, you know, I've been in several uh, in the DPRK several times where it's been packed full of Western journalists. Uh, you know, I remember in 2012 and uh, 2013. Uh, you know that you know there was loads of Western journalists there, and uh, in 2018 there was a lot of Western journalists uh, in the DPRK. And in fact, you know, a couple of them actually tried to accost me uh, when I was on my way somewhere else uh, for a, for an interview, uh, you know. And, you know, the fact is, you know, I mean, if I was the DPRK, I wouldn't want to uh, show a goodwill or let people in who are continuously slandering uh, the uh, country and, you know, making up lies and that. Uh, uh, putting out false uh, stories. Yeah, I so think that, that. Do you think that there would be like uh, medical records that could be re released? Have there been medical records released from from the hospital there? Because and the reason I'm I'm sticking with this is this to me seems like a like a a, a good case to focus in on in terms of reality versus propaganda as to what happened with a specific specific person um you know the fact that we don't really know how he got sick and why he was there so long it seems like north korea could have released more medical documents showing um exactly how they cared for him what happened you know while he was in their care but there hasn't been anything like that released well uh I believe there was actually a statement released by the uh, director of the People's Friendship Hospital, uh, which sort of referred to the treatment uh, they gave to Otto Warmbier. Uh, but as I say, I mean, what, from what I know is that he became uh, very ill not long after he'd been sentenced and he say he was given very good treatment uh, by the the staff at the people's friendship hospital uh, now there's a lot of uh, speculation about why uh, warm beer became ill you know some people in the US you know blame the DPRK I've also seen and you know uh, I'm not, I, you know, do not 
necessarily endorse these theories. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I've seen uh, it written somewhere that um, uh, you know that Warren Beer actually attempted suicide with a CIA suicide pill, and it, you know it, he got it wrong. Uh, you know, and, uh, as a result, he became ill. I think, you know, there was another story put around that, you know, he tried to hang himself and that went wrong. Uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of speculation, but, you know, I think uh, it's important to stick to the facts. And the sure. facts were that he confessed to a crime, uh, that the DPRK actually took the initiative to release him. You know, the US actually did nothing to secure his release uh, and uh, you know he actually didn't die in a DPRK hospital he died in an American hospital uh, you know and if the US cared about him so much uh, you know why didn't they diplomatically engage with the DPRK to secure his early release and in fact you know when when Trump uh, had the summit uh, with the uh, with uh, Supreme Leader Marshal Kim Jong Un. In the run up to that, uh, there was a lot of diplomacy between the US and DPRK, and the DPRK did, uh, you know, release, uh, you know, several, uh, you know, non-DPRK citizens, uh, American citizens, and South Korean citizens who'd been arrested and I would also make the point um, that none of the foreigners actually arrested in the DPRK and sentenced have ever served their full sentence in the DPRK I think the most uh, one ever got uh, longest one ever served uh, was you know about uh, two or three years in the DPRK you know some were actually released uh, you know after about nine months uh, you know, so in you know, in fact, uh, you know, uh, the DPRK is not as severe as some people are pretending. Uh, you know, you know, there's some some countries uh, where you know foreign citizens have been uh, executed for drug smuggling and so on, or received life sentences. Um, it's pretty kind of touched on you know, medical care in the DPRK, I had, you know, we're getting towards the end here. So I wanted to ask, obviously, the US, the new strategy is to sanction everyone. Uh, and our, without any legitimacy to do that, the sanctions have kind of been viewed as a joke by populations of countries that they're actually applied to. I mean, they are hurting people, obviously, but the idea that the US is some moral arbiter is a joke, clearly. Um, but the DVRK is one of the most heavily sanctioned countries on the planet. Uh, what has been done to make a more self-reliant internal economy over the last, I, I guess, since the 90s, really? Right. Well, I mean, the uh, policy of self-reliance of building an independent national economy uh, has always been the policy in the DPRK virtually from day one. Uh, President Kim Il-sung actually mentioned uh, building uh, an independent economy even in 1957. Uh, the DPRK uh, didn't join the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance or COMICON, uh, you know, the uh, economic 
uh, bloc of the socialist countries in the 50s. It instead built uh, an independent national economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, after the sort of collapse of uh, socialism in the USSR and elsewhere, uh, and the collapse of the world socialist uh, market, the DBRK is, uh, you know, as, you know, markedly uh, uh, strived to uh, do, uh, increase the independence of the uh, national economy. Uh, and particularly uh, Marshall Kim Jong-un, uh, he has strongly uh, stressed self-reliance and self-development. Uh, and, you know, in recent years, you know, the DPRK has produced its own subway trains, uh, own light aircraft and, uh, uh, you know, new trolley buses and trams. Uh, say even, even back in the 1950s, uh, you know, the DPRK was uh, building heavy industry, uh, you know, it was producing its own tractors and trucks uh, you know, even even though, uh, uh, you know, some socialist countries said, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. You know, the DPRK went uh, and built its own tractor, its own uh, electric locomotive, uh, you know. So, you know, the DPRK, uh, you know, already had a sort of diversified economic structure, uh, you know, is able to turn out uh, a wide variety of products and the sort of changes I've uh, seen myself, you know, I can remember, you know, I first visited the DPRK in 1992 uh, and I, you know, visited a couple of times in the 1990s and then in, in 2002. In those days, if you went in the shops and the hotels, yeah, you would see a lot of Chinese products, you know, some Western products as well. Uh, nowadays, you know, there's an incredible amount of uh, DPRK uh, produced stuff, you know, all kinds of uh, stuff, you know, food, uh, consumer goods, you know, the DPRK's got its own IT industry, they produce computers, uh, you know, they produce tablets, they produce mobile phones, uh, you know, you name it, they, they produce it, uh, you know, it's quite... Uh, you know, it's quite amazing what, what they can produce. So, I mean, it's quite a silly uh, illusion that the US have that simply by, you know, piling on more and more sanctions, they're going to somehow uh, either, you know, stop the DPRK nuclear program in its tracks or even cause uh, the uh, blockade, uh, the economy to collapse. Because the thing is, uh, DPRK have always lived under the US uh, blockade, you know, right from about 1950. Yeah, I think Trump kind of saw that, and that was, you know, why he made overtures to the DPRK. I think he saw that this wasn't a government that was going anywhere. Um, I guess to close out real quick, now that Trump is gone, what do you think uh, the Biden approach will be to the DPRK? Do you expect a return to normal with the kind of wait and see propaganda war approach or do you expect more aggressive measures to make up for Trump's supposed weakness yeah I mean I think it's it's hard to predict 
I think, um, you know, what, what you say about, you know, the propaganda war and wait and see is the most likely approach. Uh, you know, I don't think the uh, US is going to be in a hurry uh, to, you know, uh, build up uh, tension with a nuclear arms state. Uh, I think the US was quite um, worried and uneasy about the levels of tension you got in 2016, uh, 2017. Uh, so I think it's going to be propaganda war, sanctions, uh, you know, the human rights campaign against the DPRK. Uh, you know, some of the indications with the Biden administration aren't very good uh, at all. Uh, you know, he's appointed a couple of anti-DPRK hardliners uh, to positions, uh, you know, dealing with uh, policy towards the DPRK. Uh, you know, I think the Secretary of State spoke about more sanctions you know, they seem to want to sort of cling to the uh, uh, discredited idea of trying to uh, force the DPRK into sort of one-sided denuclearization. You know, they, they're going to stick to that. And, you know, there's some, uh, you know, quite a few indications of uh, hostility. Uh, you know, for example, a US court charged three DPRK citizens with, you know, alleged uh, uh, hacking. And uh, a US court also, and I thought it was a bit of a joke, uh, decided to uh, award $2 billion in damages to the surviving members of the US spy ship, the Pueblo, which was captured by the DPRK in 1968, uh, and also, also their family members. You know, this this is really uh, it's symbolic, but it's it's sort of an act of hostility to the DPRK. And finally, from tomorrow, uh, the US and South Korea are going to conduct war games for ten days in South Korea. Uh, so, I, I mean that. I think uh, basically shows, you know, the Biden administration is, is going to be quite hostile uh, to the DPRK. Now, whether it, that will develop into a more aggressive approach uh, remains to be seen. You know, it's early days yet. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot more I could ask, but we're at our kind of hour here. Um, thank you again for doing this. Once again, uh, for inviting me, it's uh, been my pleasure. Very, very interesting discussions. So I'd like to sort of continue them uh, sometime another day. If yeah, possible. absolutely. Jake, yeah, I was just going to say thank you, sir. That was yeah. really uh, illuminating. Yeah. Okay. So Thanks. once again, our guest was Dermot Hudson, uh, the UK delegate for the Korean Friendship Association. And thank you again, Dermot. And yeah, hopefully we'll speak again in the future. Okay, I'll see, see you around.
final segment of The Left is Dead. Um, we are on the other side of our interview with Dermot Hudson, the UK delegate from the Korean Friendship Association. Um, interesting conversation. Obviously, this is well, one of the areas where Jake and I diverge a little bit. So, Jake, what did you think? Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys think that I'm being the opponent, or the adversary. I'm really just asking questions as a devil's advocate kind of thing. Um, because, you know, I fully believe that you're right, that there has been definitely a lot of propaganda against North Korea. And, you know, some of it is probably fair and some of it's probably unfair, but I'm not, I'm not quite, I, I just haven't seen enough I, you know, I just, I don't know enough about it, one, to just assume that all of the propaganda is wrong. And it's, it's I don't know, I guess, I, I don't have any reason to particularly love North Korea right now. I, I don't, I don't know why there's this, you know, given how much, how, how little documented facts there are about their daily working conditions. I, 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 don't, I don't see the, the need to declare North Korea benevolent and good. I just don't trust any, I, a lot of evidence that comes out saying they're bad either is the thing. So I don't know. That's why we had this interview. But the thing is this, I don't think they're nearly as obviously er, like evil and like as like intentionally bad actors the way the u.s portrays them obviously and i think you know one thing we got caught up on was the auto warm beer shit and i think the farther out i got from that the more i realized like yeah north korea didn't disclose that much about his health or anything like that but at the same time like with the united states does the united states tell you what's going on with even like American political prisoners to their own population? Would the United States tell you what was happening to Chelsea Manning? Would the United States tell its own citizens what's happening to like people in Guantanamo or the not, people in Iraq? You know, not, I'm just saying like. No, that's a good point. I mean, I guess for me, it was more of a rhetorical exercise to see to what extent the guests would go to defend something that he admittedly doesn't know anything about. Right. Um, he, if, if, if he's going to, you know, take an issue that he, he definitely doesn't know very much about because no one does, and he's going to take the party, the North Korea party line and defend them, not knowing that, to me, that makes him a little bit more of a propagandist than, than a reporter because he can't possibly know the answer to this. So why, why is he so adamant that, that he has the answer to that. I, I for me, the, the reason that's the reason I was pressing him on it is to see, uh, you know, whether, in my opinion, the correct approach to that question was to simply say, "You're right. We don't know that much about that, and we need to learn more about it." Instead of saying, "Oh no, no, no. They they were perfect to him. They gave him a massage every day. Like it's like he, you know, he was just defending. He he was just basically running." running interference and I think he had a good faith reason for doing so but I, I don't necessarily think it was necessary for him to, to to play that role 
I think he gave you all the information he had. And I don't, he, you know, even when he gave theories, he said, like, I don't, this is a theory I've heard, but I don't, I can't tell you if this is true or not. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But I mean, again, this is like, uh, this is the area where like we sometimes diverge, like the real politic of fucking international shit. You know what I mean? Because things get tricky when it comes to like, you know, I, I understand his point of like, well, this kid was taken in a country that's been targeted by the United States since the 1950s. You know, I understand the hesitancy from them to release any details or to cooperate with the United States, especially given their general attitude towards the United States 365 days a year. Yeah, no, I get that. And I, I don't even think we're necessarily in disagreement about that. Uh, oh, okay. You know, we definitely have an information war going on with regard to to North Korea. Um, But, you know, we just don't see a lot of North Korean dissidents who can provide, you know, really good information about the inside. And that kind of says a lot that there's, you know, if, if it, you know, with, oh. with, with a lot of other countries with tyrannical, supposedly tyrannical regimes, you have a, a fair number of dissidents who escape and will speak on the record about what it's like there. But with North Korea, you have a really surprisingly small number of them. And that's not to say necessarily that they're all enslaved. It could simply be that it's, uh, they're economically unable to, to make that move and to be in a position to to, to get outside and talk about it. But it's certainly, uh, it's certainly worth thinking about that there, there's so few dissidents on the record who can give us really like good information about it. I'd say two things. One, maybe there's not as many people trying to leave as you would suspect. You well, know, yeah. I'll throw the- that in there as a theory, okay. you know. Yeah, that, that, but that, that's a theory that would support what you guys are saying. Right. Which, I'm just throwing that out there to you, you know. But like, is, that, is that really, I mean, you're, but that, that doesn't make sense really because there's, there's, there's wonderful country, uh, wonderful countries that get really painted in a bad light by the U.S. that have a number of, of people who, dissidents aren't always people that, are fleeing a bad state. There's all kinds of reasons why a family or a person would leave a country and end up in another place. And we see all those different variations from tons of different countries. But so, so saying that they're not leaving because it's good isn't really an answer. That, 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 and then, I mean, here's another thing then. Again, like these aren't concrete things. I don't have any you know, data to back this up. But another difference between, say, I don't know, um, a Venezuela, where a bunch of American NGOs operate and pump their cash in, Richard Branson has benefit concerts and everything like that for Juan Guaido. You know, these U.S.-backed assets have a lot of connections in their home country, right? Ukraine, the right wing of the Ukraine being supported by the United States during the mess there. Um, One thing that came up in the interview was North Korea does not allow 
these Western like human rights or democracy like NGOs like or like USAID or anything like that. They don't allow them in. And these are things that are often, you know, in cooperation with the CIA or State Department. So again, like I understand, you know, there's different types of dissidents, but so, okay. So you're you're saying that like North Korea is essentially shut off because the US does not see a way to profit both uh, in terms of like government policy and in terms of like private investment in, in North Korea. I think there's a benefit to like cutting off of like the like NGOs and things like that and like charities connected to the United States government. And I think that the cutting off of those things is what prevents things like color revolutions. You know what I mean? Sort of. Making sure like, okay, and I don't want to like sound like an idiot here, but like say like um, a George Soros like pro-democracy like NGO, you, you know, like, you know, this works with like large liberal think tanks and like George Soros is like friends of Brookings and like the CFR and things like that. He runs in these circles with like Kissinger and Hillary, you know, these things are like part of the United States foreign policy. You know, the opposition forces in a lot of these countries are backed by U.S. cash, whether it's, you know, non-government agencies or things like USAID, like I mentioned. These are, I mean, these are organizations that have been guilty of running arms in the Latin America and things like that. I mean, come on, you know, like I think there's an... There's a value to keeping them out of your country. You know what I mean? And I guess what I'm saying, and I understand that. And I guess what I'm saying is uh, there's so many different ways and reasons that we can critique the kind of economic imperialism of the U.S. There's so many like documented cases that we have from so many different countries that I'm not sure that we need to uh, sacrifice the legitimacy of those cases by equating them with North Korea. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think there's enough that we know about North Korea to stake the very real criticisms we have for what the US does in other countries and by equating it to what is happening in North Korea. You, well, you see what I'm, like, yeah, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Either way, I think we can agree it's none of the US's fucking business and it's not our business to change it. You know? Yeah. And it's not our business to try and fucking provoke a nuclear armed power. No, certainly not. Uh, uh, no. Uh, I mean, Trump's theory was basically like, hey, dude, fuck it. Like, if Japan and South Korea get turned into craters, like, that's the cost. You know? When the blustering was going on, it was like, well, these are millions of lives, but most of them aren't American at risk. Well, I will yeah. say this, one of the famous North Korean defectors uh, posted to her Facebook story not too long ago that she was excited to read Jordan Peterson's new book. <laughs> so you can follow her. Well, that that's a shocking twist. Yeah, I don't know. It's all there. But yeah, either way, I just don't think, you know, let the lesson be, don't trust the U.S. either. And you know, no matter what a problem is, the answer is never U.S. intervention, you know? 
Okay. I, I mean, we're in agreement on that. Yeah. We'll call it. Let's end it at that because we can agree on that. Everybody, I think, who listens to this can basically agree on that one. So, I don't know. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Jake's running the Twitter, so check it and tweet at it if it's not active. Follow us on Twitter. Yeah, we're we're putting some stuff out there on that. All right, man. And I will talk to you soon. All right, buddy. And we will talk to everybody else soon, too. So have a good night, everyone.